we'll go ahead and get into our study tonight. And uh, I had originally intended to be mostly in the book of Job tonight, but uh, we're going to be several places. And I haven't fully decided where I'm going to start out at, uh, just to be honest with you. So I'm still looking. I'll tell you where to turn to here in a minute. But anyway, we've been in a study for some time that I've called Jesus BC, and we've been looking at uh, salvation and uh, Christianity through the lens of the Old Testament. And so we've been going through and looking at uh, how people were saved in the Old Testament because uh, man, since, since Adam, since sin entered into the world, man has needed salvation. And as I've said many times during, during the study, a lot of people have the false idea that in the Old Testament people were saved by works, and in the New Testament they were saved by faith. But we've seen that all along that God is the same yesterday and today and forever, and that in the Old Testament man was saved by faith. We look at all the uh, all the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, all Old Testament saints, and it says that it was their faith that saved them. And uh, we've looked through... Uh, many different things, uh, many different stories, and even going through large swaths of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament and seeing God's working <clears throat> amongst people uh, during Old Testament times before Christ and seeing that God has always dealt with mankind based on his faith. It's not ever been uh, based on man's merit, never been based on man's uh, qualifications, his goodness, uh, anything that man has done, but it has always been based upon the character of God. It's always been based upon who God is and man putting his faith and trust in God. And so we've seen that all along. Last week, what we were looking at was the time of the prophets and the kings. And so we covered really a large swath of scripture with that. And we saw that... Um, the times of the prophets in the Old Testament and the times of the kings, although they exist in two separate sections in Scripture, that they existed in the same time, that they overlapped one another. And so really you have the, uh, the books such as 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles give an historical account of the times of the kings, but the prophets existed at the same time as the kings. And so whenever you get into uh, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them uh, existed during the time of the kings. Some of them were after the time of the kings, whenever there was the uh, restored nation of Israel after captivity. And so you've got ones such as uh, Malachi and Ezra that uh, tell us about that. But anyway, looking at these uh, prophets and kings at that time, we were seeing that uh, there is a huge importance in who you follow because the nation of Israel would follow a bad king, they would follow a good king, right? And what, whatever their leadership, whoever they were following, determined the direction they were going. So we've got to be careful who we're following because that's going to determine our direction. Uh, we saw as well that with God's dealing with the nation of Israel, that whenever they were going astray, whenever they were going away from God, God in his mercy and in his love would send the prophets to call them back to himself. He wasn't expecting them to uh, 
to do great works or do penance or go through all these different things to be restored. But he said, you have turned away from me. You have abandoned me. I just want you to come back to trusting me once again. Mm -hmm. And whenever they started trusting God once again, then God restored the blessings to them. He uh, began leading and guiding them and watching over them and protecting them. And his dealings with them was always based on their faith in him. Whenever their faith left them, whenever they decided to start putting their trust in other gods or into other kingdoms, then God allowed them to go astray. God allowed them to follow after their lusts, but he also allowed the consequences of that. And so in our study last week, we saw that as we normally look at Israel as a nation and God's dealings with Israel, we could compare that with us as Christians because uh, Israel was God's people. We are God's people if we're saved. Uh, Israel could not do anything that would cause God to reject them, to do away with them, to choose someone else. But whenever they did uh, turn away from God, whenever they did forsake him, God would pursue them, he would chasten them, and he would bring them back to himself. Same thing with us as Christians. But all throughout Israel's history, there have been individuals that make up Israel. And those individuals weren't saved just because they were part of Israel. God didn't just say, well, you were born as descendants of Abraham, so you get a free pass and you get to go to heaven. But instead, even uh, whether it was times of good, whenever there was good kings that were following after God, there were people who, even though they had good leadership, they had good kings, and Israel was following after God, there were people who were evil and rejected God, even though they were part of Israel. But on the opposite of that... You have people that even though there were bad kings, such as King Ahab and Jezebel, or kings like uh, Manasseh and different ones like that, even though there were wicked kings that were in charge, there were still godly individuals who were trusting in God and that were saved, a godly remnant, in spite of the wickedness. And so throughout all of that, we see that for Christians, God desires us to follow him. We can turn our backs on him. He will not forsake us. He will pursue us. He will allow the consequences of our sin to push us back to him. But for those who are lost, it isn't based on their uh, heritage, their family, their uh, nationality, or anything else. It is based on their faith that makes them a child of God. Okay, and so we see that highlighted all the way through the time of the Kings. So what we're going to do tonight, and I believe, unless the Lord changes my mind on this, that this will be our final uh, final lesson in this series, um, and I'm not entirely certain where I'm going from here, okay? But anyway, this, as far as I know, this will be our final uh, lesson in this series. But what we're going to be doing, instead of looking at one specific passage or one specific, well, I guess it is one specific thought. But just in the idea of thinking about uh, salvation and man's need for salvation, I thought that it would be useful or helpful for us to look at one of the reasons uh, for salvation, as we're going to see in the Old Testament. And I want to look for just a little while at our adversary, at Satan, okay? And so I want to look at that for just a little while, because what we're going to find is that in different portions of Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New, we get an insight to uh, Satan, what he's like, what he's doing, uh, what his desire is for us. And the Bible tells us that we're not to be 
ignorant of his devices, tells us that he as a roaring lion, says our adversary as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. And so if we've got an adversary that wants to devour, we need to be aware of what's going on. And so as we're looking at this in the Old Testament, um, as I said, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Job. But I think before we jump into Job, let's go ahead and go to Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 3. And when you find that, hold your place there. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 14. Yes, Isaiah 14. Okay, so let's start with Isaiah 14. I think that's where we'll begin. Just the way that my mind works, I'm kind of going in chronological order, okay? Not necessarily how it's listed scripturally, but chronologically. So in Isaiah chapter number uh, 14, down at verse number 12, we're introduced to Satan, we're told his backstory, what happened to him. And it says in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Verse 15 says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And so anyway, as we look at this, we're finding a little bit out about Lucifer, about Satan, okay? And that is giving us insight into his fall, how he was lifted up with pride. It says that he was the, the son of the morning. There's other places that he was the exalted cherubim. There was uh, times that it talked about how uh, he was made up of uh, pipes and organs, a musical instrument that he was bedazzled with, uh, jewels and all these things, that he was beautiful, but he was filled with pride. And he got to the place where he says, I don't want to worship God anymore. I don't want to serve God anymore. Instead, I want to be worshiped. I want to overthrow God. I want to assume his position. I want to take over his place. I want my throne to be above his. Well, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? And so him being the uh, created being, okay, decides that he is going to exalt himself above the creator. And that sounds ridiculous to us until we realize this very notion of salvation that we're talking about, whenever we realize that people reject their creator and they decide that they are going to be the ones that call the shot, they're going to be the ones that decide what's right and what's wrong. They're going to decide what is uh, reliable, what is true, what is right. And they are going to put God to the test and they're going to be the judge of the God of all creation. Guess who they have become like? And that brings it a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? And so the very thing that exists in Satan exists in us if we're not careful. And this is where we come to whenever we start talking about salvation. Because what we find is that God created all things. Everything that he has made, was, or everything that exists, is a result 
of his design, of his desire, of what he has set forth. It was done out of his mind and by his power for his pleasure and for his purpose. And so everything that exists is because of God, including you and I. The very life that we have is because of him. He sustains our life. He keeps our lungs working, our heart beating. Uh, he has formulated everything, and he has done it so perfectly that man is honestly uh, a, a magnificent creation, okay? I mean, if you start studying the human body and the way that it works and every little cell and every little particle and how perfectly uh, perfectly designed, perfectly in tune that everything is, we find God's handiwork all throughout mankind. And if you take it outside of the human body and put it into creation and how everything is so well balanced, how everything is so well made that he has made all things good. I mean, just think about how beautiful this past couple of weeks with the weather being what it is, his creation is good. I mean, if you look at the beauty of the things that surround us, even marred with all the things that man has put on it, I mean, we've got concrete, we've got asphalt over here, we've got scaffolding and pipes and all kinds of junk going on. I mean, but yeah, you look at the trees and you look at the sky and you go out and see the animals and the creation and all of the beauty that God has made for us. And we get to live in it. We get to enjoy it. He has provided us with the food that's necessary. He has uh, tuned our atmospheric mixture just right. So we breathe effortlessly not even realizing that if the balance of the the different components of the air that we breathe was slightly different, it would completely change our existence. Right. We have the we have the nighttime to restore for us to lay down, of course, to sleep. But God even decided that just in case it's going to be too dark to put night lights out. Now we've got moon and stuff. I mean, think about all of the things that He has put in creation, the way that He has balanced it out. And if there was just one or two things that were moved, one or two things that are different, creation could be a lot worse place. Even if you look at the food chain and the way that things are, I'm just thankful that there's not things that's going to come and gobble me up. But he has different things there, predators and whatnot, keeping all things in balance and all things in place. And so what I'm trying to say here is that God, our loving and benevolent creator and sustainer of life, has done all things well. He has put us here, and He has done all of these things for our good and for His glory. Okay? And I say that phrase oftentimes, for our good and for His glory, because He is glorified when He is good to us. He is glorified whenever He shows His character, His love, His mercy, uh, His goodness toward us, even whenever we are undeserving of it, just his goodness manifest in us glorifies him. He tells us, uh, I can't remember the verse, I don't have it written down, but anyway, as we live our lives out as Christians, do it in such a way in this world that we live so that they can see our works and they can glorify our God, right? And so whenever he is good to us, and whenever he takes care of us, and whenever he provides for our needs, it is glory to him. It does not bring God glory for him to condemn, for him to judge, for him to punish and all these things. I guess in a way it does because he is just, he is holy. But here's the thing, God does do all things well. 
And then whenever we look at the account of creation, we find him creating everything on day one. He says, and he looks at it and he sees it and he says that it is good, right? Day two, and it is good. Day three, it is good. Day six, and it is very good, right? And day seven, he rests. And he says that creation is good. And so he put mankind into this creation for us to enjoy his work and enjoy his benefits and enjoy his presence as the creator. But because God is loving, he also gives us a choice. And we've talked about this choice quite a bit, right? He gives us a choice. So Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Everything is good. They are basking in heaven on earth, right? And so could you imagine being in a place where there is no sickness, there is no pain, there is no death, being in a place where all of your needs are met, there is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no anger, there is no sadness. It is all peace, it is all joy. Surrounded by that in the Garden of Eden, get into fellowship with your Creator. He would come down in the cool of the day and fellowship with His creation. And Adam and Eve was surrounded by that, and that was the way that God had intended it to stay. Right? Right? He says, I have showed you my goodness. I have bestowed all of these blessings. I've showered all this on you. And your only thing that you have to do is enjoy my presence and my creation. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? And so he tells them, though, he says, I have made one tree. I've placed one tree in all of this that you're not to eat of. It's off limits. It's forbidden. But everything else is taken care of. And we look at that, and a lot of people would question God, would blame God, and say, well, God, why did you do that? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if we didn't have a choice? Right? But let me ask you this. Is it pleasant, is it good for us whenever our choice is taken away? The girls watch a movie quite often. And it aggravates me. But it is about a girl who, whenever she was a baby, uh, she has an enchantress that comes and puts a, uh, supposed to be a gift, but it's a curse upon her, that she has to be 100% obedient. She doesn't have a choice. And so anytime anyone tells her to do anything, she obeys immediately. And it is miserable, it is oppressive, and it is one of the worst things imaginable for her. And she's trying all of her life to get rid of this so-called gift because she doesn't have a choice. And whenever you watch a movie like that, you see how oppressive it is whenever you are forced to comply. And now that's a little bit silly. It's, you know, this whole uh, Cinderella-type atmosphere, all this different stuff. But then you get into other countries and different things like that where people have no choice but to comply. You get under communism, you get under uh, different um, uh, totalitarian governments and whatnot to where the people have to comply. And is that good? It's not. And of course, they are under horrible regimes and oppressive regimes that are wicked and are corrupt. But even under a God who is perfect and holy, if you did not have a choice if you were forced to only do what God wanted you to do, is that pleasant? Is that good? We know that God is love, right? 
And I've said many times that love requires a choice. And I've used this illustration in the past, I know, but the, the whole uh, what-if scenario, what if we were the only two people left on the earth, right? Man and a woman, the only two left, they're on a desert island, it's just the two of them alone. Would there ever, is it possible that there could ever be a love relationship between the two of them? What do you think? I venture to say that it's impossible because there is no choice. If nothing else, the glory is going from the relationship, right? Because the man is thinking all along, okay, well, I'm only here because she has no other choice. Or maybe she's thinking he's only here because he has no other choice. And so do they get to delight in that relationship without knowing that they were chosen over other options? Now, we've heard in the movies and different things, out of all the people in the world, you've chosen me, right? But that is something that is glorious, right? It is honoring because there were other options available and yet they chose them, right? And so for God, whenever he created mankind, God loves and he desires for man to love him. But in order for there to be love there, there had to be a choice. In order for God to be glorified, he had to be freely chosen, right? In order for there to be a relationship between God and man, there had to be an alternative. And so with that, we find that God placed the tree in the garden, and so man has the choice. Is he going to love God for who he is? Is he going to be grateful for the things that he has provided? Is he going to trust him because of all that he is and because of his character? Is he going to uh, follow him? Is he going to obey him? Or is he going to do what he wants to do? Is he going to doubt God? Is he going to go his own way? Is he going to determine his own path? Is he going to establish his independence? And so he has a choice. Back to our two people on the, the island thing, right? I've always heard if we were the last two people on the earth, then the species would end with us, right? You ever heard that? <coughs> so not even if you were the last man on earth, not even if you were the last woman on the earth, would I choose you? So the choice was extinction, right? And so God gave Adam and Eve a choice, a decision. But it wasn't just as simple as the tree because we started off talking about Satan, right? And we're looking at Satan and seeing where he fits in this puzzle and in this plan. And so whenever we look at Satan here, God, whenever Satan fell, he could have just destroyed Satan, right? As far as we know, he spoke him into existence. He could have spoken him out of existence. He could have bound him in hell at that time. He could have thrown him into the lake. Of, he could have done lots of things. But God determined that he would allow Satan to continue for a time. Why? Because he presents a choice to mankind. See, we get the wrong idea about Satan. We get this idea that Satan is God's counterpart. Right? 
as if it's a dichotomy, the Chinese have the idea of the yin and the yang, the white and the black, the opposite, equal opposite opposing forces, right? We have this idea almost like uh, Jesus is a superhero and Satan is his arch rival, right? And that how it's often portrayed. And so you've got two different uh, two different personalities fighting one another for control. But that is not accurate whatsoever because, once again, Satan is a created being. God spoke him into existence. God is the one who had the power to create him and gave him any power that he has, right? And so nowhere ever has Satan been anywhere close to a match for God. Essentially, Satan is a gnat buzzing in God's ear, if we want to put it in perspective, okay? And so that works our human brain a little bit because, once again, we come back to the question, why does God allow Satan to continue? And that's where it challenges our mind and our understanding of who God is. Because God is big enough, powerful enough, sovereign enough, and yet good enough that he can hold all things together and he can work all things together for good and for his purposes, even the devil. And so that's hard for us to fathom, hard for us to understand, right? But God had a purpose for Satan, so he allowed him to continue. Was it God's will for Satan to rebel, for Satan to fall, for him to introduce sin into the world? Was that God's will? No, it wasn't God's will. But he is able to work that into his plan and work it together for his will. Okay? And so, as I said, Satan is not God's counterpart, but God allows Satan to continue for a season, almost as the tree in the garden, giving us an alternative. We go to Joshua chapter number 24. Joshua challenges the people of Israel. He's getting close to his death. The people of Israel are going to continue after he's gone. And Joshua tells the people of Israel, Choose ye this day who you will serve. Right? There is a choice presented to them. He says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so this was the, the choice that he gave to them, but it's the same choice that mankind has had before him since the creation of mankind. Choose who you will serve. Whether it's going to be the God who has created all things, who has spoken it all into existence, who sustains life, who gives you everything that you have, that uh, keeps the earth turning, keeps the sun shining, keeps the seasons coming, keeps the food growing, and keeps your heart beating, and keeps all things going, are you going to serve him or are you going to serve something else? Yourself, the devil, society at large? Ultimately, it all comes back to Satan, doesn't it? Because he is the prince and the power of the air. He is the god of this world. And so are you going to serve the God of creation or the God of this world? That is the choice that Satan presents. And so choose you this day. And so in Genesis chapter number three, I think I already had you turn there. But if we come to Genesis chapter number three, 
First five verses here, I believe. Yeah. It says, now the serpent, God allowed the serpent, okay? He allowed him to be there because Satan, and we'll see this in a minute when we get to Job, Satan has no ability or no power unless God allows it. He can only go as far as God lets him go, okay? It says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of the, every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so we see Satan speaking through the serpent, and what is Satan's desire? What is he attempting to do? Okay, he's wanting to trick her, but into what? Okay. And so ultimately, Satan's scheme, his deception, what he is desiring to do is he wants mankind to reject God, right? And we see that from the very beginning all the way through until the end, and he is desiring for mankind to reject God. He says, I will be as the Most High. I will exalt my throne above his. And so how can he undermine God? How can he topple God's kingdom? And so his attempt is to turn people away from God, right? And so with that being his desire, with that being what he wants to do, then God allows him to continue because he's putting the, the choice forth before mankind. Will you follow him or follow him? You have your choice. And so as we look at this passage in Genesis chapter 3, we find that Satan is causing the woman to doubt God. In verse number 1, Yea, hath God said, doubting God's word. Can you really trust God's word? And if we look at mankind today, if we look at the world which we live in, man scoffs at God's word. Did God really say that? I've read just this week, I've uh, listened to videos and interviews and different things of people mocking and ridiculing God's word, saying it's the ideas of men, it's things that men have come up with that it's not reliable, it's not accurate, it's not even of God. And so what have they done? They have listened to the lie of the serpent that said, did God really say that? Right? And the woman says, we may eat of the trees of the fruit, or fruit of the trees of the garden, but we can't eat of the fruit off of that tree. She adds to it and says, neither can we touch it. And so then Satan speaks and says to her, you shall not surely die. So she starts questioning not just God's word, but also God's judgment. God says that this is sin, and Satan says, that's nah, not really. Does that hit a little bit closer home now? Where the world today has believed the lie that the things that the Bible says is sin aren't really bad? It's June, it's Pride Month, right? You shall not surely die. It's not actually bad. It's not really a sin, right? 
And so she's she's questioning God's word. She's questioning uh, what he has warned her about, whether or not the things that he has told her are accurate or really will happen. And he starts causing her to question God's goodness. In verse 5, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he's saying to Eve, God's word can't be trusted. The things that he has warned you of aren't real, aren't right. And instead, that God is actually the bad guy. Right? God's keeping this from you because it's actually something good and he is threatened by you and he doesn't want you to take this because then you'll see that he's not as good as you thought that he was, that he's not as powerful as you thought that he was, and you can actually become as gods, and you can be the one who determines what's right and what's wrong. You can know what's good and what's evil, and basically you're not going to need God anymore. Are you starting to see where Satan is at work in the world that we live in? That the same lies that he told Eve are still the same lies that he's telling this world today, that God isn't actually good, that God's trying to keep you away from good things, that God's actually threatened by you, that his word is not accurate, that his uh, warnings are false. There's no heaven, there's no hell, you won't actually die. These things aren't actually bad. His word has flaws and God isn't good. So why listen to him? Just do what you want to do. And so Eve saw the fruit. She paid attention. She heeded the lies. And she partook of it. And then she passed it off to Adam. And he partook of it as well. And so Eve basically chose herself and her way over God. And Adam chose Eve over God. Right? And that was Satan's desire all along is for them to reject God and for them to go their own way. Okay? And so the same challenge still exists to this day whenever we're talking about salvation is we have the choice that's before us. Are we going to trust God's word? Are we going to trust his warnings? Are we going to trust his way? Or are we going to reject it and do our own thing? We can go forward, we're not going to, but we can go forward, we've already looked at this, to Cain. That was Cain's sin, wasn't it? He says, I'm going to reject God's way, I'm going to do my own thing. Right? When we get up to Judges, we looked at Judges. Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Forget God's way, I'm doing my own way. And Satan laughed. Satan loved it. That's what he was after, is because God says, I'm not going to force you to follow me. I'm not going to force you to obey. I'm not going to force you to believe. I'm not going to force you to do my will. I'm going to bestow all of my blessings and all of my goodness. I'm going to show you who I am and my character. I'm going to allow you all the benefits of my creation. And then I'm going to allow you to decide whether you want to serve me or if you think you or someone else can do it better. And what Satan ends up doing is he comes in behind us, convincing us 
that all of the things, and we'll see this again here in a minute, that all of the things that he has done to mess our lives up is God's fault and causing us to follow him instead of God. Satan is the original narcissist, right? Now let's go over to the book of Job. Now, my goal in this, I want us to see the nature of our enemy and our need for salvation, okay? And so in the book of Job, I'm not going to read a whole lot because, you know, we're familiar with the story and I would have to read a lot just to bring out the things I want to bring out. But in the book of Job, we're going to find that, for one thing, and this is reassuring to us, that Satan is limited by God. In the book of Job, we get a sneak peek in and Satan cannot do anything beyond what God allows him to do. That's a blessing, isn't it? So much for him being all-powerful. And so God tells him, you can only go this far. And whenever uh, we're first introduced here in Job chapter number 1, we see in the first uh, little bit here, the first five verses, that it's talking about Job and introducing us to him and uh, his wealth and his family and uh, his good works and different things. But verse 6 says, now, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence camest thou? Then Satan answered and said, uh, answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like uh, none like him in all the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and all his house and about all that he hath on every side? Now this is Satan giving his account of God's treatment of Job, and this gives us an idea of how God treats his people. He says, You have a hedge about him. You have prospered him. You have protected him. You have taken care of all these things. I can't touch him. And that should help inform our prayer life, right? Because God does that for his children. And he says, Thou hast made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And so this interaction is quite weird, but it gives us a little insight into God's control. It gives us some insight into Satan's desires and his limitations. Okay, And so whenever Satan appears before God, he is accountable to God. And God says, okay, Satan, what have you been up to? And Satan says, oh, I'm just searching the world over and seeing where I can wreak chaos. I'm looking for someone that I can corrupt. I'm looking for some evil that I can do. And I'm trying to turn your creatures, your creation, against you. And so God says, okay, if you are out there trying to make them choose you over me, why don't you start at the best of them? Don't go after the lukewarm ones. Don't go after the half and half in and out ones. 
Go after Job because Job is the best. He is one that is dedicated to me. And if you can corrupt him, then what a victory you win, right? And Satan says, oh, but I can't attack Job because you have a hedge about him. You are protecting him and you are prospering him. But the question he asks, God, does Job fear you for nothing? Okay, what he's saying is Job's faith, Job's following you, his piety that he has, is only because of your blessings that you've put upon him. Job is only serving you because you're good to him. If you take away all those things that you've given him, he's going to curse you to your face. So this is the challenge. Okay? And so while we're looking at Job here, is Satan still attacks in the same areas as he did in Job's time. Okay? The first thing that he said is, God, if you mess with them financially, then they won't serve you. Okay? And this goes both ways. He says, okay, Job has everything. He's prospered. He's blessed. And so if you take it away from him, if he is cast into poverty, he will curse you to your face. And if we were to bring that in a plot to today, there are plenty of people who reject God because they will point to all of the injustices in the world. They'll say, if God is loving, if God is good, if God is even there, then why is this country impoverished? Why do they not have anything? Why is there famine? Why is there disease? Why is there pestilence? Why are all of these things going on if God is so loving and good and kind? And they're taking the corruption and the wickedness that Satan sows in this world, that is the effect of sin in this world, and they are blaming it on God, right? And so he says, if you put them in a time of financial hardship, if they don't have enough substance to meet their needs, then they'll curse you. Another thing that Satan does is he also works through prosperity. This is something that's big with the prosperity gospel, right? It says, uh, and this is kind of follows along with Job's friends as well, is they preach that God's going to bless you, he's going to multiply you, and they are searching after the blessings. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of it. And so they're preaching all along, trying to get people to love God because of what he does for them. Is that not what Satan says? And so these churches are saying, if you will serve God, he's going to give you all these benefits and all these blessings. But what's the problem with that? They're, they're speaking the lies of the devil, for one thing. But what's the problem with that? If the blessings don't come, there's something wrong with God, right? And if the blessings do come, they got what they wanted and they no longer need God. We look in the New Testament whenever uh, Satan takes uh, takes Jesus out into the wilderness and tempts him, right? He shows him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant of time, and what does he offer? Okay, he says, if you worship me, I will give you the world, right? How many people today have been seeking the entire world and willing to give up God to get to it? The Bible asks us, what does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world, loses his soul, right? Paul said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. 
And so what Satan will do is through riches, either the abundance of them or the lack of them, if they have too much, they don't need God. They forget God. How hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God? Okay? If they have an abundance of riches, they don't need God. If they lack riches, then God is to blame. And so Satan attacks in the area of riches. The next thing that he says, because uh, Job responds, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And Satan responds and says, yea, skin for skin, a man will give everything for his life. And so he says, if you would take away his health, then would he cease serving you, right? And so God says, you can take away his health, you can't take away his life. And so he is cursed with boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. He's setting, scraping himself with a potsherd, and yet he still doesn't sin against God. Satan's idea in this was as long as a man is healthy, he'll serve God, but as soon as his body is struck with illness, then he'll curse God. And so let's, let's try this again. Do we see this in the world that we live in today? Do we see this attack today? How many people have you seen who turn against God or reject God when either themselves or a family member falls ill? They have a grandmother who is a godly, a righteous person, and she comes down with cancer and dies. I can't serve a God that would give my grandma cancer. You ever heard that? How could God be a good God and allow disease and suffering and hardship? Look at the sicknesses that befall little children. Look at these illnesses that exist around the world. How could God be good? How does he even exist? And if he does exist, I don't want to serve a God like that. You ever heard that? And so Satan says to God, if you mess with their health, they will reject you. They will hate you. Right? He still does the same thing today. And here's the thing. Satan is messing with all of these things. He's blaming it on God. And people are choosing to follow Satan and reject the one who gives them their life and the breath and their purpose and being. Right? The third thing that we find in this is then his wife looks at him and says, how long will you maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. We might be able to be poor. We may even be lacking in health as long as we have our family on our side, right? If you have support from family, you can go through a lot. You need people in your corner. You need people cheering you on. And as soon as his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? Man, that would bring him low, wouldn't it? He would be lonely. He would be all alone and he would be saying, there is nobody for me right now. Nobody on my side. How can I do this alone? God, how could you do this to me? That's what Satan was hoping for, right? And Job tells his wife that she speaks as a foolish woman because shall he just only expect good things at the hand of God and not also accept the bad things? And that's his response. And still he doesn't sin against God 
because he is acknowledging God as being good, as being gracious, as being worthy of our trust and our faith, and that even though at that time he didn't know what God was doing, he was still going to trust God. He says at one point in time, he says, though he slay me, still I'll trust him, right? And so Satan says, okay, I'll take away his family. I'll take away his finances. I'll take away his health. I'll take away all of these things. He'll curse you. He still doesn't curse him. And so he brings his friends along. And so now there's social pressures, peer pressure. Society is against him. If you really think that you're alone because your wife was against you, just wait till the world comes against you as well. And you realize that you're in the minority and everybody else thinks there's something wrong with you, there's something wrong with your God, and wants you to quit serving your God and tells you how horrible you are, then what are you going to do? And you see his three friends, and we studied through the book of Job, but his three friends come, and one of them says, uh, they start arguing by experience, right? I've been through this, I've seen this happen, and this is the way this works, and so I'm arguing on behalf of experience that you are wrong about your God. Okay? Does that happen in society? Look at all the things that I've been through. I'm evidence. Right? Another one based on scholarship, on the things that they have learned. People have studied this for years. Scientists have got it figured out. We know how this works, and your God is wrong. Your perspective of God is wrong. You need to just reject that, step away from your beliefs, and Come over here to the scholars, to the smart people, to the people who have understanding, and forget all of that nonsense about your God. Is that not the pressure today? We've got evolution. We've got universities. We've got all these different things that tell you that your God is wrong, that your beliefs are wrong, and that you're stupid for believing them. Can you withstand that? It's another one of Satan's attacks. We also have one of them that argued from the point of, uh, of tradition. This is the way the rest of the world sees it. This is the way that it's always been. This is the way that we believe. And you're in the minority and you don't understand and you don't know and you're wrong. And that was Job's three friends coming to him, giving him all these reasons why the rest of the world thought that he was wrong, that his belief was wrong, that his faith was misplaced and that he was just in a mess and he needed to get straightened out and come over to their side and their way of seeing things. And so at that point in time, Job said, everyone, everything is against me. Do I still trust my God? And he did. He questioned him sometimes. He got a little upset or even angry at God from time to time, but he still trusted his God. We come to Elihu at the end of it, and Elihu says, continue trusting your God. You may not understand it, but God is able to work through these things and to bring about all these things for your good. And though you may not see it now, just give it time, and you'll see in the end that you were right in trusting God. And so God appears. He rebukes the three friends. He commends Elihu in a way, and he comes to Job, and he says, let me just educate you a little bit about myself. And through all of this, God uses this experience to expand Job's knowledge of him, right? To show him he was right in trusting him, 
to show him that God knows what he's doing, even if Job doesn't. And then in the end, he blesses Job and gives him back double of what he started with because guess what? He passed the test. See, we can parallel this with our lives a little bit, that Satan wants us to reject God. He wants us to depart from our faith, for us to abandon him because of the things that exist in this world. He'll bring up questions. He'll bring up doubts. He'll cause us to question God's word and God's goodness. He'll cause us to look at all these different things around us. Uh, he'll mess with our finances. He'll mess with our health. He'll mess with our family. He'll mess with uh, society around us, bringing all these pressures on us, trying to get us to deny the God who created us and imparted us with an innate knowledge of who he is, a desire to know him, a desire to worship him, a desire to be with him. He gave us a knowledge that this isn't the way this world is supposed to be. Anyone you ask understands that this world is broken, that there is something wrong with it. Even the evolutionists, even the ones who are claiming that there is no God, they're saying there's something broken with this world, that this world is going the wrong direction, that something needs to be done about it. There's not a man on this earth, I don't believe, that's like, yeah, this is exactly the way it was intended to be. Because God has implanted within all of us a knowledge that he has something greater for us. He implanted within each of us a desire to worship. And if we don't worship God, we'll worship something. We have a desire to know who God is. We know that there's something out there bigger than ourselves. Why is science trying to extend out and explore the utmost reaches of the galaxies? They said there's something more to this than this, this ball of dirt we're on, right? And so mankind is searching for something bigger than us. They're trying to figure out what went wrong with this world, trying to figure out what fills the yearning that we have inside of us. God put all of that there. And then Satan tells us, forget about God. He's not even real. He doesn't know what he's doing. He starts bringing out all kinds of other different things to worship, different ways to go, different ideas about why we're here and what it's all about, and leading us away from God and causing us to reject the God who made us and sustains us and follow after something else, right? And so we see this all the way through from creation, the fall of man. We look at it in Job's life and how Satan worked in his life. And all along, God has allowed Satan to only exist as an alternative to the truth right? We can either believe what is right, what is good, and what is true, or we can ignore all of that and follow after Satan's lies, but ultimately, it is up to us. The final thing that I want to bring out today is, I'm not sure where my notes are at on this, but anyway, uh, Luke chapter 15. I know we're in the Old Testament, but for the New Testament here, I want to use this as an example, and we'll, we'll wrap it up, okay? Luke chapter number 15, and I want to use this for an illustration. Verse number 11, 
And it says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed his swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired sons. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servant, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. So you say, well, where does this all tie into what we've looked at so far? Here's the thing with the story of the prodigal son. The father, in his goodness, in his nature, in his character, and who he was, the father bestowed upon the son all of his blessings, all of his goodness. The son was a beneficiary of the father's goodness and all that the father had, and he took it for granted. And he said to the father, give me the portion of my inheritance. I don't want to wait till you're dead. Give me your money while I'm young enough to enjoy it. Right? And in our minds, in common sense, okay, our reasoning, our way of thinking, the father was nuts. Right? He sees his son. His son says, Dad, I'm sick of living under your rules. I want all the benefits. I want all the blessings. I want none of the responsibility. And the father would have said to the son, It's mine until I'm dead. If you want it, you're going to have to wait until I'm gone, because I'm not going to watch you squander my stuff while I'm living. So you just stay here and wait. If you want stuff, go get your own stuff. Isn't that how we would act? But here's the question. If the father would have told the son that, what kind of relationship would they have had? What is it? They would have had a poor one. The son would have stayed there just to milk the benefits and the blessings, but he wouldn't have been happy about it. Would he have loved the father? He'd been waiting on him to die, maybe trying to poison him, right? And so he wouldn't have been loving the father. They wouldn't have had a relationship with one another, would they? Instead, they would have been separated, yet still in the same home. There would have been problems there. And so anyway... Excuse me. If that would have remained, would the son have brought any glory, any joy, any happiness to the father? None, right? 
And so they would have been an extremely strained relationship. So the father says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and give this to you. I'm going to let you make this decision for you to abandon me and all of my goodness, for you to do what you want to do. And so he gives him his inheritance. And not many days afterward, the son gathers it all together and says, see ya. And he leaves the father and says that he goes to a faraway country. He squanders it on riotous living. And it's not long before he begins to be in want. Now, here's the thing. The father yielded to the son because the father was good. Because the father loved the son. Because he knew he couldn't force the son to love him. And if he continued to force him to obey him, it was going to result in a horrible relationship. So he said, okay, I'm going to give this to you. I'm not going to hold you too tight, and I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to allow you to leave with the knowledge of my character, of my love, of who I am. Okay? I could compare it to a parent with their child, okay? As the children are growing up, they require so much control for forced obedience to an extent, okay? But what would happen if my girls grow up and they're 30, they're 40 years old or however I end up living and I'm still forcing them to obey me 100%? They've got to do what I want them to do, when I want them to do them, how I want them. Would that work out very well whenever they're 30 and 40? Am I going to have any kind of relationship with them? They're going to be looking for a way out. They're going to be trying to get away. And will you would you consider me a good parent for making my children obey all the way up until they're until I die? I wouldn't be a good parent, would I? Would they love me? They would not love me. Would I derive any joy, any glory from them or their behavior in that? No. So it comes a time as they grow up that you have to allow them to go and make their own mistakes and hope that the things that you have taught them and the things that you've instilled in them is enough that they will continue. I believe it was John said, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in faith, right? He says, this brings me joy. This brings me glory. Whenever I see my children, he's talking about his children in the faith, but whenever I see my children continuing in the direction that I have established and continuing in those principles, even whenever I'm not forcing them to do it. And so you, you see them grow up and be successful and see them be good and productive members of society, see them continuing following in the faith and making good decisions and everything, and then it brings glory to the parents. It brings joy and satisfaction to the parents. And then there can also be that relationship between the parent and the child, right? Going back to the prodigal. So the prodigal goes, he abandons the way that he was raised. He abandons his father's goodness. He leaves all of that. He squanders the things that the father has given him. And then there's famine in the land and he begins to be in want. His father has plenty, but he is living impoverished because he has left the blessings of the father, right? He has removed himself from that. And as he's there in the hog pen eating pig food, 
He says, even my father's servants are treated better than what I'm living right now. My father is so good. He has so much. He is more than capable that even the servants fare better than what I am right now. And so what does he respond? What does he decide to do? His answer to his problem is religion, right? That's the answer to his problem. He says, I will go to my father. I will submit myself as a servant, as a slave. I will try to work off my debt. I will try to earn his favor. I will try to get him to welcome me back into his good graces. That's religion. That was his idea. He said, I want to appeal to religion. Now, one thing about it is he already knew enough about his father that in what he has done in that culture, he could have been executed. Mm -hmm. Remember, honor thy father and thy mother? Mm -hmm. He could have been executed for what he did. But he says, I know that my father will still treat me good. He still underestimated his father's goodness. But he says, I know that my father is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is loving, that he is forgiving. And so I'm going to go back and submit myself to the judgment of my father, and I'm going to beg for mercy. And so he comes back to his father's house. And before he can ever even go through all of his speech, his father runs, grabs him up, hugs him, kisses him, and orders to kill the fatted calf and bring the shoes and the best robe and the ring and all these different things and throw a party. <coughs> Did the son get any opportunity to do penance? Did he get any opportunity to go and work off his debt? Was he given probation? Was he grounded, put on restriction? Nothing. And so what we see in this is that God, like the father in the story of the prodigal, gives us a choice. Mm -hmm. He doesn't force us to serve him. He doesn't force us to love him. He doesn't force us to obey him. He gives us a choice. He lavishes us with his goodness. He shows us his character and who he is. He loves us unconditionally. And then whenever we are dumb enough to reject him and to walk away from him, he allows us to because we have that choice. He also allows us to go through the consequences, right, of our choices. And whenever those choices and those consequences mount up, if we're smart, we realize we have a loving God, a loving Heavenly Father that is more than capable of taking care of us. And I've tried to do it on my own and I've made a mess of it. But if I go back to him, he is merciful. He is forgiving. And so I can go back to him and I can come to him in repentance and I can seek out his mercy and he will forgive me. He will accept me. He will kill the fatted calf and not even put me at arm's distance, not even make me go through penance, not make me go through any of these things, he will accept me back. And so with all of this, I think the story of the prodigal highlights so much what we've been seeing 
in Genesis, in Job, in this interaction with Satan and the way that he works, Satan wants to deceive us. He wants to make us think that there's something better than the Father's house, that we know better than what God does, that God's word is not sufficient, that it's not reliable, that God's way is not good, that there's some greener pasture somewhere else and cause us to doubt and reject and to go a different way. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to choose him. But God allows us to choose, right? And so whenever it comes to salvation, Satan wants us to rely on anything and everything except for Jesus Christ. Any other means of salvation that the world and the devils come up with besides by grace through faith. Trust in your works, trust in your church, trust in your religion, trust in your ancestry, trust in whatever else, but don't trust in Jesus. That's what Satan wants. And so you have a choice to make. That's why I'm a firm believer that salvation is a choice. There are religions, there's denominations out there that think it's some kind of a process, that it's some kind of steps that you go through. Salvation is a choice because from the very beginning, God wants us to choose him, to trust him. You put a choice in the garden. You put a choice all the way through. We trust him for salvation. And then after salvation, he wants us to trust him with everything. It says, uh, by, uh, by prayer and supplication, uh, make all your requests known unto him, right? He's saying, come to him and all, I may have butchered that verse, but anyway, he's telling us that we can bring everything, casting all of our cares on him because he cares for us. I can do all things through Christ, Uh-oh. right? And so in all of these things, he's saying, I just want you to trust me for salvation. And after you're saved, continue trusting me. Satan will keep coming to us saying, trust something else. Trust me, deny God, reject him, doubt him, go away from him. And God says, I've proven it. I've shown myself. I've shown my character. I've taken such good care of you. I've provided for you. You have all of the blessings of the Father. Now you decide whether you're going to trust him or if you're going to go to the far country. Right? And so with that, we don't have to fear the devil. He may be an adversary, but he's a man. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, right? But we do have to realize the devil's game. He lies, he deceives, he misleads. He calls us to question. He wants us to reject God. That's it. And so whenever we come down to this idea of salvation, this is the question. Who do you choose? Do you reject God? Or do you trust God? For salvation and for every step of your life. Because the devil will continue coming to you in these very same things that we've seen here tonight. And he will cause you to question. He'll cause you to doubt. He'll pressure you. He will try to get you to go a different way, to have you reject God. And see, God in his goodness, God in his mercy, I didn't touch on this, has given us a short amount of time on this earth. Mm -hmm. 
And I say in his mercy. Because would you like to live here eternally? I don't want to live here eternally. As good as this place is, I don't want to be here <laughs> eternally. But see, whenever God, or excuse me, whenever Adam sinned, right? When Adam sinned, God says, I've got to cut this thing short. I'm not going to leave them here forever. He could have killed Adam and that'd been the end of it, right? But he said, instead of doing that, I'm going to allow them to exist on this earth for a short amount of time. hundred years if you're lucky, right? I'm going to allow them to live on this earth for a short amount of time. I'm going to show them all of my goodness, but I'm also going to allow the devil to give them a choice. And so for this time that you're on the earth, you get to choose. Do you want God or do you reject God? And whenever you pass off of this earth, God respects your choice. And so if you reject him in this life, then you don't have to put up with him in eternity. There's a place prepared. But if you desire him in this life, if you choose him in this life, then he's going to prepare a place for us and we exist for, with him for all eternity. Does that make it a little simpler? We make our entire life, everything that we do down here, about this short span. We're eternal beings. We're eternal creatures. We're going to spend eternity somewhere. And God is good to us on this earth and in this life for us to decide, do I want to accept him or reject him? And that's going to determine eternity. So those who accept him here, live with him forever. Those who reject him here, don't. So with that, I better quit. Does anyone have any questions or comments on what we looked at tonight?
we have, we were made. He made us mm -hmm. weak, perhaps in other way, and then he knew Eve is going to fail that test. Mm -hmm. What was the reason behind called letting Eve inside him to start a conversation with you? Mm -hmm. Okay. They are not questioned per se. Again, they are questioned because they. Right. Okay. Well, a few things. Yeah. The first thing you said is uh, that the root of why is doubt, mm -hmm. right? Which isn't necessarily true. Okay. The reason I say it's not true is there's two different whys. Mm -hmm. Okay. The one why is accusatory. Okay. And that's rooted in doubt. Okay. Why and how both, I guess, would be the same way. And so why, whenever we say, okay, God, why did you let this happen? That's accusatory. Or you can say, God, why did you let this happen? And that's whenever you're seeking answers. And so why, there's nothing wrong with why if you really want to know the answer. But the other why, you're not wanting to know the answer you already think you know. Right? Why? How could you? Right? It's accusatory. Mm -hmm. You've already got your mind made up on that one. But the other one, you're just seeking <laughs> you're seeking wisdom. You're seeking understanding. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Okay? So, why is not always rooted in doubt. Okay. okay? But whenever we do have why, sometimes like Job, we have to be content to not know the answer. Because sometimes it's just, uh, it is in, it's one of the mysteries of God. It's within his sovereignty, his ability, and we have to trust him. He doesn't have to run everything by us. He doesn't have to make sure we understand it. Okay? Um, so that was the, the first thing. Uh, the next thing, I'm trying to remember the, the statements that you made, the questions you had. The, the statement was about the reason behind God started the conversation. Okay, okay. God started the conversation. Uh, you realize that God never asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. And, and that, that, that's why I'm asking. Okay. I'm bringing this conversation okay. in. I knew I had the answer. I had mm -hmm. the reason behind it was it's God. Okay. So you look at Adam and Eve. They sinned. Mm -hmm. And he says, where are you, Adam? He knew already. He already knew. Mm -hmm. But he was pointing a conversation. He was giving them a chance. Giving them a chance. He was, you know... And so he was giving them, where are you? Well, we're over here. Well, why are you doing this? Well, because of this. Yeah. God already knew, okay? Mm -hmm. But he was leading the conversation. He was allowing them to respond. So whenever it comes to him and his conversation with Satan, he says, where have you been? And Satan answers, well, God already knew what he's been up to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Satan can't do anything without God already knowing. But uh, it's leading a conversation in one place. A an extra thing for... For us is the book of Job and the whole conversation is recorded for our understanding, for our knowledge, okay? God is peeling back the clouds of heaven and allowing us a, a sneak peek into the spiritual realm and the workings of things. And so that's part of the reason that conversation happened. But also for him saying, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, it's an illustration for us, but it's an event that actually did happen. But God was guiding Satan to do what essentially God already had ordained, what he'd already planned, right? And so you see that there are times that God knows Satan so well that he will do things to provoke him to fulfill his will. And what I mean by that, you look, for instance, 
uh, at the crucifixion. Okay, who was behind, who was behind the crucifixion? Why did okay? Whenever Jesus was born, why did Herod try to slaughter the infants? Right. Was why? Okay. In, in, I guess for me to admit this, there's, there's there's a spiritual two, aspect two, behind yes, it. There's two answers. There. There's spiritual aspect, uh, mm -hmm. aspect of it, and there's um, bodily mm -hmm. that we can say yeah. helps judge based on, on human form. Mm -hmm. Herod was afraid to someone to come and take his kingdom. Okay. Okay. If we take the human aspect off of it. Whenever we come up to Judas at the end, it says Satan entered into him. Right? So that gives Satan direct influence. That gives him credit for it, right? So Satan entered into Judas. Judas ended up betraying Jesus, right? And so Satan says, I am going to kill the Son of God so that he can't save mankind. Either with Herod, with Judas, with Caiaphas, Annas, all the rest of them, right? I'm going to kill the Son of God. And in so doing, he fulfills prophecy, fulfills the will of God, and causes Jesus to be the sacrifice for all mankind so that we can be forgiven of our sins, right? And so every time that Satan thinks he gets one up on God, right? Every time he gets one up on God, God turns it around and works it together for good. For our good, for God's glory, right? So even with Job's situation. Whenever Satan comes before God, he says, okay, have you considered my servant Job? Job, he's a good, godly man. I know that Job can handle this. I know how he's going to respond. But Satan, I want you to go and put him through the ringer for just a little bit. Because through all that, I'm going to record a book that's going to be uh, encouragement and instruction for believers down through the centuries, but also I'm going to use this situation to be a blessing to Job, to educate him about who I am, about what I'm like, to strengthen his faith in me, and in the end, I'm going to bless him greater than he ever began. So, Satan, you go and work in his life. Try your best to mess it up, and I'm going to turn all that around for good. Because God already knew how the end was going to come out. So he put Satan through this whole futile thing of Satan thinking he's going to win. Satan thinking that Job's going to doubt him, that he's going to reject him. And in the end, Satan is exposed for the fraud that he is. We understand his tactics, the way that he works. We know that he's a defeated foe, that God is in control, that God controls how far that he can go. And that in the end, that God is sovereign. He knows what he is doing. And that he can work out even the worst of circumstances for our good. And at the end, Job was a wiser, more godly, more faithful, and more prosperous man than at the beginning. And so through all of that, God used that whole experience to educate Job and us. And Satan was just a tool. And so that's hard for us to understand that God allows Satan to continue because he's useful. Is that hard to wrap your brain around? Does that make your head hurt just a little bit? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's useful to God. He's useful to God. Okay. He brought about a means of salvation, right? 
He gave mankind a choice. And one of these days, he's going to do it again because Satan in the end, once again, he's going to be leading people saying, follow me, don't follow God. People are going to follow him, but some are going to follow God and then they're going to follow Satan to their destruction and God to their glory. And so Satan is not the adversary of God, the opponent of God. A lot of times he is the tool. And that shows us how big our God is, that God can even use something like the devil to bring about good and bring about his plans. That sounds almost like blasphemy, doesn't it? But we've seen evidence of it over and over again how God does that. So anyway, anything else? I don't know if I answered everything you said there, but I keep going off on other things. Let's say yes, because I believe there's, there has to be a reason. God doesn't do things just because he mm -hmm. can do things. You're telling me so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for, for, the, for the purpose of God, God, as you mentioned already, God starting conversation, he knew that he had mm -hmm. to do that because he had have reason behind even though it wants fit in this small brain. Again, I guess we, we, we miss, I, I still miss that. This, I feel like this, that point of puzzle that's still yeah. missing to, to accomplish well, the reason. Really, that's, that's how, one of the... How, okay, big God, mm -hmm. Have a purpose, you know the reason behind why, mm -hmm. but why continue to have this conversation with you? And then, okay, let me put it this way something comes in my brain. Okay, I have a friend, this is very dearly friend, mm -hmm. or I'm dearly friend to him, mm -hmm. I betray him, mm -hmm. totally messed up. Mm -hmm. To the point this person he doesn't want to see me anymore okay i'm not saying that's god but i'm just trying to place scenario between mm -hmm. why I'm, I'm thinking god i don't know god i'm not i'm trying to put myself in place of god i'm thinking god should not even have conversation with certain yeah so i'm dearly to this person i mess up mm -hmm. and after all things messing up He's still coming to a conversation with me. Okay, two things. Yes. Two things. One of those, in your situation, okay, yes. you are saying two peers, mm -hmm. two evil, e not evil, two even. Even. Equals. Equals. That's what I was doing. Even and equal. I'll put them together and put even. <laughs> but okay, two equals is what you're saying. Satan and God are not equals. Okay? And so the reason why two equals would part ways is because one is a threat to the other, right? Mm. Satan is no threat to God. And so this comes down to the sovereignty of God, and it comes down, we talk about the meek, talk about meekness at times. Meekness is power under control. 
And so for the person who realizes that this isn't a threat to me, I don't even have to respond to it. They don't even have to get excited about it, right? And so uh, I've, I've compared, I've used the, the dog illustration several times. You have a chihuahua. He acts like he's going to eat you up because he's got something to prove. You have the Doberman or the Rottweiler. They're chill. You're not a problem to me to them because they know that they can rip your throat out in one second. And so they're not worried about it. And so you're not a threat to them, right? So they don't have to come at you bearing their teeth and barking and show you how big they are. They know how big they are, right? God doesn't have to come after Satan or feel threatened by Satan because he's not a threat to God. God can allow him to continue to exist because God is in control, he's sovereign, and there's not a thing that Satan can do that is even going to touch God, but that God can still use Satan to work together for his purposes to allow mankind to have a free will and have a choice and decide, will I serve God or will I reject him? Those who serve God go with God. Those who serve Satan go with Satan. And so Satan is a useful idiot. You ever heard of a useful idiot? <laughs> In God's economy, basically Satan's a useful idiot. He has a purpose, and so he allows him to continue doing stupid stuff yeah. because it serves a purpose. And whenever his purpose is fulfilled, he'll go to hell where he belongs. But unfortunately, he'll take every other person who was dumb enough to be duped into following him and to reject God and all of his goodness and think that they could do better. Well, and really that's the the biggest takeaway from the book of Job because God comes to Job and he says, where were you whenever I set the bounds for the seas? Where were you whenever I established they could only go this far? When did I ask your permission? When did I ask your opinion on anything? And so basically he was telling Job, you're not going to be able to comprehend everything. Sometimes you just have to trust me. Okay, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer because we're already uh, over time. This could have been two lessons, but anyway. Maybe I need to split it up on the internet so it doesn't look so bad. <laughs> but anyway, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for this time that we've had in church tonight. Lord, we thank you for these things that we've uh, got to explore. Lord, we just pray, Lord, ask you, Lord, just to help us to take these simple thoughts. Sometimes they're difficult, but they're simple, Lord. And Lord, we have a choice. And uh, you've proven yourself over and over and over again. You are dependable. You are trustworthy. You are reliable. And we can uh, we can trust you, Lord. But yet, oftentimes, we're dumb enough to try to trust ourselves or chase after other things, Lord. Help us to realize, Lord, that it is, uh, it's all about us just submitting to you to serve you, to trust you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, we thank you for all that you do. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.